Welcome to Orange Crest Community Church and OCCathome.com. We are so glad you're here. At OCC, our mission is to invite people to take their next steps with Jesus. And so we pray that through our time together, you're encouraged and challenged to move forward in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening. Good morning, OCC. Uh, my name is Pastor Josh Deloroso, and as you can see, there's such a wide variety of answers to that question. Who is Jesus? And we're going to be looking at that question and then really try to answer that uh, throughout today's message. And we're going to move further into this series of messages looking at the story of Jesus' ministry and how he would uh, journey with his followers uh, up mountains, down into the valley. And, and we're now only a few months from his his death and the end of his earthly life and ministry and and we're going to be hearing more of the conversations about uh, his identity and the purpose of his life. And these conversations about identity and purpose just keep becoming more and more frequent with his followers. So I want to pick up in Matthew chapter 16, uh, beginning with verse 13 through verse 26. So let's take a look together. It reads this, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, this is a region just to the north of uh, Capernaum, it's uh, north of Galilee a little bit. So comes to a different region, Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, and, and the tense here on the Greek is it's imperfect tense. So it, it essentially means he's asking them repeatedly this question. The question is this, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So who, who do people, and it's almost like he's, he's asking the disciples, the followers, uh, the closest, the twelve, who do, who do people say? That the Son of Man is. Now, this Son of Man is the term that he would use to refer to himself. So, essentially, uh, who, who do people say that I am? And he turns this one into that disciple and then that disciple. And, and basically, verse 14, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So, people are describing that they think Jesus is just another prophet. So, the disciples relay the information. People think you're a prophet. God sent us another prophet, and you're in this long line of prophetic uh, tradition. Verse 15, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? I understand other people think I'm a prophet, but what about each of you? What what about you? It's time to not only decide, uh, but to declare your answer to this question. So who do you say that I am? Now, so what is a confession? It's, it's when an internal belief becomes an external declaration. It's where our heart, our mind, you know, the inside matches the declaration and the confession of our lips. So the inside flows out. That's the confession we make. And Jesus started pressing the disciples on this question. He doesn't ask, who do you think I am? Or even who do you believe I am? No, he asks, who do you say that I am? He's asking for their confession, not just an internal belief. But he wants to know what would they confess. So he draws another line in the sand. And we've been watching him do this throughout uh, this series of messages where Jesus uh, he sort of raises the ante. He calls them to a higher level of commitment. He, he wants them to continue to decide to be all in. And, and so he asks, will you publicly confess this? Who do you say that I am? Now this right here is a dividing point for a lot of people. And some of us would say, I'm going to church. Isn't, isn't that enough? Or, or, yeah, I believe in Jesus internally. I believe he's the Savior. 
But here's the question. Will you confess that he's your Lord and Savior with your mouth? Will you declare that? Will you confess that? Uh, a lot of people would say, I don't, I don't think I'm ready to confess that, to actually say that. Now, here's what God inspired one first century church leader to write about this. Uh, Paul wrote in Romans, uh, to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He wrote, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You make that confession. Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. This issue of confession is crucial. Well, will you confess this? Now let's go back to verse 16, Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter speaks up and answers for the group. Uh, you are the Messiah. You're the Messiah. That, that word means uh, you are the anointed one. You're the Christ. You're the Lord. You're the, he says this, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Wow. That is quite a confession. Verse 17, Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon. This is Peter. Son of Jonah. Basically, right answer. <laughs> you're going to be blessed. That's the right answer. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. It's not that Peter somehow unlocked himself, the divine mystery of who Jesus was. No, it's that God the Father opened up Peter's spiritual eyes. He, he, he had divine revelation. God helped him to see the truth about Jesus. Now, let's go back to verse 16. Simon, again, he declares, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This is a really important statement that he makes. A couple things I want to note here. First, he, he says very specifically, you are the Messiah. Not a Messiah, not another Messiah, uh, not a prophet. He, he, no, you are the Messiah. You are essentially the one and only Messiah they were waiting for. He was the long-awaited, expected Savior of the world that God had sent. This is the one that all the prophets, in fact, in the past were pointing towards him coming to earth and if peter had some said something else like you're another prophet or you are like john the baptist or elijah or, or you're you're a good teacher or you're you've been a really kind helpful person uh, all of those answers would have been insufficient peter actually knew that the one standing right before him was their savior the god who had come to rescue them, they had journeyed with Jesus for now over two and a half years at this point, And there was no one else like him. Peter and the disciples could verify that Jesus was unique. And so he says, you're the one. You're the Messiah. But it's even more personal because Jesus is saying, you know, but who do you say that I am? He's sort of pointing around the room. Peter's reply is very, very personal. You're the Savior. And, and you know, he's speaking for the group, but in a sense, you're my Savior. I... I this is personal. It's serious. This is life-altering good, good news. And Jesus then continues in verse 18. And he says, And I also say to you that you are Peter. Now, the word Peter uh, in the Greek here, it, it's the word um, Petros. And it just means a stone or, or a rock. It's, it's a small stone or a rock. And that's what Peter's name means. You are Peter. Okay, He uses this word the Greek word for his name. But then he continues and he says, and on this rock, and now he uses a, a similar word in the Greek, but slightly different. So Peter's name in the Greek is Petros. Uh, and he, then here he, he talks about, and on this rock, 
the Greek word for rock there is Petra. So Petros, Petra. The word Petra, it it has it means bedrock. It means a quarry or it means a rocky mountain. So so this is a pretty significant distinction. And I think what is happening here, and I've heard this explained in different ways, but I think he tells Peter, you're Peter. He points at him probably. You're Peter. You're Petros. You're like a stone. Okay. You're a rock. But then I think he, he turns and I think he says, but on this rock, and I, I'm, I, I think he's pointing to himself because he's using a different word. And on this rock, he's, Jesus, I think, is turning the attention to himself because this word means like a massive bedrock, a, a, a rock that is not going anywhere. You don't pick up and throw a mountain, a, a sheet of bedrock. I mean, that is fixed. It's firm. And so I think there's a distinction here. Peter, you're a stone. But on this rock, Jesus is saying, I will build my church. Now, he's not talking about uh, constructing uh, a church where he's standing, like the bedrock right where he's standing, because the history doesn't show that, that there was some church in Caesarea Philippi that was erected because of this statement. No, he's not talking about a building. We think in terms of building. Usually when we talk about church, we think a location. But uh, Jesus is referring to a group of people. The word in the Greek is, for I will build my church. The word for church is ekklesia in the Greek, and it means the assembly. It means the called out ones. This is referring to the group of people that make up the church. And so he says, I say to you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now sometimes people will substitute this with Hell, so they'll say, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. But actually, the word is just the word Hades, which just means uh, the underworld. It means the grave. It means death. That death, and essentially, Jesus is saying, look, death cannot hold people in prison. Jesus is declaring that He has come to set captives free, to to release prisoners from the grave. Now, a few weeks back, I showed you a picture of Peter's house in Capernaum. Uh, and again, we talked about how it must be pretty awe-inspiring to go and to uh, look over the railing inside of this Roman Catholic church that is built over the top of the ancient ruins of what is believed to be Peter's house. A lot of the miracles happen there, just some exciting things happen there, probably a lot of ministry strategy and talk. And uh, Now, Peter's house, again, awe-inspiring. Now, if you were to go to Rome, you would start noticing th- some things about Peter. And this figure in the Bible. If you started touring uh, the Vatican City there in Rome, really the heart of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, you would actually see this statue. This is a statue, I saw this right in front of the Vatican when we went there a few years ago, where Peter is holding a, uh, a set of keys. And this is depicting Peter holding the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And you'll notice then also as you tour through the Vatican, or if you know much about the Roman Catholic Church, that you know that there's a belief that Peter was the first pope of the church, of the Roman Catholic Church. And now uh, there is a, a history of popes through the years. Uh, and that when one pope dies, another pope is named. And, and, and now this next verse, verse 18, is the passage that some cite to reference the idea that that Peter was the first pope and this this tradition that was created that the pope has a special authority. And so look at verse 19. 
Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now he's speaking to Peter here still in the, in the Greek. He's speaking in second person uh, singular. So he's speaking to Peter um, as who will be a leader, uh, a significant leader in the church. He becomes extremely bold in his faith. He speaks up and many times at just the right time. He shares the gospel uh, on a very important day. Uh, the day of Pentecost. You can read about it in Acts chapter 2. Um, so, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. So, he hands he, he hands this assignment to Peter to be a courageous leader. Uh, he's going to be entrusted with the gospel uh, the keys, the key, he says, the keys of the kingdom of heaven is given to you. Now, Peter is a representative. He's a leader, uh, but he's sort of a representative of the group. And he would be later a bold and courageous witness, uh, not only to the Jews, which he did take a stand in Acts, early uh, chapters of the book of Acts after Jesus is gone, but then later even to the Gentiles. He's a key leader in making sure that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, would hear the gospel. And, you know, that what is the key to uh, the keys to the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's, I, you know, most would say it's, it's actually the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus. And so, uh, but this statement here is taken much further by some to mean that Peter actually has a special authority and that um, as the Pope, uh, he has a, some special privileges even. And so uh, the, the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church uh, builds on that to where the Pope can speak and um, uh, declare some things uh, for the church today. Now, I don't think you're going to get that from uh, this passage and from church history. Uh, or uh, And even just as we read on a little further, I think sort of calls into question uh, that that Peter would be given, uh, should be given that special place of spiritual authority, almost otherworldly authority. Um, but I'd encourage you to look into that. Verse 20 reads this, Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Now, have you answered this question for yourself? The question that Jesus asks the disciples, Who, who, who am I? Have you, have you ever really wrestled through that question of who is Jesus? I'm sure that there are some of you who are watching who would say, you know, Jesus was just a man. I, I don't believe in God at all. I don't think uh, Jesus was anything more than just a man. Uh, other people might be thinking, I'm still just trying to figure that out. That's actually why I'm watching today. That's why I'm tuning in. Also, I think there was someone that would say, I, I agree with Peter and and. I would say Jesus is the Savior, and, and I live for him, and I follow him, and I'll, I'll walk with him in my life. And I'm learning his ways, and I'm yielding to him as the Lord of my life. Sadly, I think there are also some people that would say, you know, I agree with Peter as well, and, and Jesus is the Savior, but, uh, but I think there's many who confess him with their mouths, but deny him with uh, their lives. And there's sort of a separation uh, from the things we say and then the life we live. And that's, that is a problem uh, of eternal consequence. Because at least the atheist, the one who says, I reject God, at least the atheist is consistent in their beliefs. 
You know, they reject that there is a God. Therefore, they reject Jesus as their Savior when they're presented with uh, the message of the gospel. And they're consistent. And even though it's heartbreaking to know that there are some who fully reject Christ and, and, and the existence of God, I do respect people for wrestling and being consistent with their decision. But for the one who confesses Christ as Savior but then denies him with their life, lives without remaining under the lordship of Christ, if that's you, then I think this passage actually should give us some reasons for concern. Now let's go back to the passage. Uh, Peter and the disciples, they are they're pretty convinced. They've seen all these acts of power, might, compassion, and they've been persuaded by Jesus' talks and his sermons. And Jesus just starts checking for the quality of their confession. Because Peter states this thing, now he's going to test Peter and, and the disciples. And this is very helpful for us as we evaluate these matters for ourselves. And so here's what I want to do. I want us to wrestle with this question. What is a true confession that results in saving faith? Look at that question for a moment. Just consider that. What's a true confession that results in saving faith? Have I made that? Will I be saved? Am I, am I secure in that? Do I see evidence of a true confession in my life? If I'm trying to help others sort out this decision, am I sharing the full truth uh, with them? So I want to give you four uh, statements here related to this. So first is this. A true faith confession comes from people who trust completely in the work of Christ. Trust completely in the work of Christ. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. So let's look at verse 21. We'll keep moving forward. It says, From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary. This is a key phrase here. It was necessary, Jesus tells them. And I want to spend some more time on that phrase in a minute. Jesus points out from here on out that it's necessary for him to go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. Now, something is very important, Jesus is saying, necessary that Jesus be killed. What are you counting on to save your life? Don't... What are, you, what are you putting all of your hope in? Uh, I think the most common natural thought or earthly answer is to say, I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to be a better person. I'm trying to be a moral person. And you know, that's a good thing for our society, but it's not enough for matters of eternity. And here's the problem. God is holy. He's righteous. He's perfect. He's just. And in God, there is only perfect righteousness and nothing and no one can stand in his holy presence except for those who are also perfectly righteous and and here's the problem that you and i know all too well there's no amount of church there's no amount of prayer no amount of money that we can give which that's tough for us to believe because as americans we pretty much are convinced that money can solve all of our problems but we can't buy god off to secure our place in heaven there's no amount of serving There's no amount of giving to the poor. There's no amount of small group attendance or church attendance. There's no amount of uh, right choices that we've made that can make up or cover up or cover over all of the sin that we've committed in the past, in our present, and in the future. We're just not capable of being perfect uh, in our fallen, sinful nature. I probably don't need to convince you of that. 
Now, going back to verse 21, Jesus, from this point on, kept pointing them to the fact that it was necessary, he tells them, for him to, to die and to be raised. Well, why? Why is it necessary? It's because if Jesus was really God, which over and over, as we've seen, he keeps proving that he is God. He has unlimited power. He lived a perfect life. Uh, and he did all of these things. And then Jesus alone, because of his perfect life and his mighty power, because of all those things, as God, he was qualified to take our sin and to pay for it in full. He took it on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus, he took the full wrath of God that was aimed at our direction and in our direction, and he stood in our place. Uh, he got in front of it, and he, he bore it for us. This wasn't for every good person. This wasn't for every church attender. This, this, this was everyone for everyone who would place their trust in Jesus to save them, and then willingly yield their lives, their entire lives, to follow him. And if that's you, then Jesus' shed blood on the cross has covered your sin, so that at the end of your life, you can stand forgiven. You can stand cleansed and declared not guilty when you stand before a holy God who will judge the whole world. You see, this is the good news, that in Christ... We can be redeemed, and, and we are given Christ's perfect righteousness. This is called the gospel. This is the good news, that Christ died for sinners, and he rose to offer us new life. And I want to encourage you to evaluate that first statement, if this is a true statement of your belief and your confession. So just consider that first point for a moment. Are you trusting in Christ completely? Let's continue on in the passage and see another aspect of this. A true confession, faith confession, comes from people who, second, elevate God's plan far above all others. Even my own plan, even your own plan. Sometimes what happens in life is God's ways conflict with our thinking, our planning, and our major concerns. For example, uh, Peter gets tested after making the statement that he, you know, he declares, Jesus, you're the, you're the, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. He gets tested after Jesus makes the statement that he will go to the cross and that he will be killed and that he'll rise from the dead. And, and we'll take a look at the test that Peter pretty much fails. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So he's rebuking Jesus. Here's what he tells Jesus. Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Remember, Jesus just said, I'm going to be killed. In Peter's mind, how can, how can it be this way? This is Jesus. This is the one who calms the storms. This is the one who raises the dead. He, he heals the sick. He casts out legions of demons. How could anyone kill Jesus? So Peter sort of pulls him off to the side, speaks to him in private, and he says, I'm not going to let this happen. I, I won't. It's almost like he was saying, over my dead body, I've got, I've got this covered. We'll, we'll, we'll find another way. So one moment, Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, which you're the Lord. You're in charge. It's your way, not my way. But then here he questions the plan that Jesus reveals. Now, the phrasing here, you know, it, it reads, you don't have to look back at verse 21, but he, he just says, uh, Matthew tells us from then on, Jesus began to keep pointing this out. This is what's going to happen. Jesus keeps telling him, I'm going I'm to be killed. 
Now, aren't we just like Peter? We wrestle with God and his plan constantly. We wrestle. We're wrestling our ways, our plan, our concerns, God's concern. But here it's even worse than that. Verse 23 reads this. Jesus turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. The enemy now was at work through Peter aiming to block the plan of God to redeem. This is this is what Satan's trying to do. He's trying to block the plan of redemption that God was working through Jesus. And so he tells Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. You see, Satan was at work now in Peter trying to tempt Jesus towards finding a different plan. And Jesus just calls it straight out. And many times in our lives, we'll find ourselves in a wrestling match when God's concerns start interfering with our concerns. Now, a true confession, however, initially realizes that though there's going to be a lifelong wrestling match, uh, I'm, I'm yielding my life to Jesus. One big yes, and then I start preparing for a lifetime of of yeses, little yeses, every day as they come. And I, I'm not always starting there. I'm, I, I'm just like you. I'm, I'm wrestling with this, but I'm determined that with His help and His power, I'm going to get there. I'm going to yield to His plan. Another very similar aspect of of a true faith confession is this: that it comes from people who follow Jesus on His terms, wherever He leads. So look at verse 24. Then Jesus said to His disciples, Anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Essentially, Jesus is saying, I'm going to call the shots. You want to follow me? I get to call the shots. And here's the thing with Jesus. You don't get to know where he's going to lead you next, but you trust him. And this was probably part of the joy and the challenge of following Jesus. For those first century disciples, for around three years, they must have woke up every morning wondering, Where's he going to lead us today? I mean, I think that would have been amazing. Where's he going to, where are we going to go today? Who are we going to meet today? Who are we going to encounter today? Who's he going to have us interact with today? Because Jesus, he flipped their world upside down. He's leading the disciples to interact with the hurting, the broken, people they would have avoided. The outcast, the outsider, the unclean, the demonized. He, he led them through regions that were off limits to most Jews. And he said, hey, we're going to go through this region today. And they were probably shaking and they were probably nervous and they were probably staying really close to jesus because uh wouldn't you i mean you'd want to be close to him just in case anything goes south Uh, but they were willing to follow but is that is that where you're at what if following jesus cost you your personal dreams and your ambitions i mean think about those what are those things that you're sort of hoping for in life will come together What are those things that you're counting on coming together? What are those things that you've been planning on coming together? What if following Jesus costs you those things? Is it worth it? Or what if following Jesus means that he sends you to a foreign land? I have several friends that are living far from their family, uh, far from uh, the city they were raised. Uh, And it's challenging. They're going through pressures and they're far from home, far from the support structure. What if following Jesus means that's God's plan for you? What if following Jesus means that you'll stand out according to our culture's standards? I don't know where God is going to lead you, but if you need life to be done on your terms and you're still sort of gripping tightly onto the steering wheel, needing to be the one steering the car of your life, it's possible that you've not made a true 
faith confession. Because to confess Christ as Lord means, Jesus, you take the lead. I follow you. You're the boss. If you say, go, I say, where? (laughs) If you say, jump, I say, how high? If you say, serve, I say, when and where? I'll be there. And on and on and on. Jesus sets the terms. Final part of this passage reveals this aspect of a true, another aspect of true, true faith confession. And it's this. It's identify with Jesus faithfully before others in our world. It's really tempting to sort of separate our lives. It's possible for, for people to identify with Jesus only up on the mountaintops. You know, those spiritual experiences, church, conferences, small groups, men's summit, women's conference, but then to reject him and deny him uh, down in the valley, like where we live our lives. It's possible to walk with him in the, in the mountains and get excited and then and then forget about him in the valley where we're with our friends, when we're with our neighbors, our coworkers, our teammates, when we're doing the dating scene, whatever whatever's in your, you know, life in the valley, are you are you the same person? <laughs> are you identifying with Christ uh, through faithfully through the areas of your life? Now look at how Jesus continues this. Verse 25. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Jesus is saying, because of me. Whoever turns towards Christ and moves away from going their own way in life, they're going to find real life, which is found really in Jesus Christ alone. Verse 26 reads, For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world, yet loses his life? What if everything you've ever lived for and everything you've enjoyed on earth missed the mark and costed you eternity with God? That's what Jesus is warning against. He's saying, you don't want that to happen. Or, he he tells them, or... What will anyone give in exchange for his life? Jesus is saying, what a shame to miss the key to real life. Real life is found in following Christ. Is it time to turn your life towards Christ, to repent of the the way you've been going and to do so even publicly? You see, the thing about a confession is that a confession is a public declaration. That's what's so powerful about uh, this declaration that Peter was making and that uh, we see many times in the Bible. That that act of going public is so powerful. And when I say going public with your faith, it, you might have some different images in your mind. For example, this first image is, is one of Billy Graham and a uh, Billy Graham crusade. And you see there's this, this long aisle, you know, and people uh, in, in those days, as Billy Graham would preach, the great evangelist that God used to, to speak to millions and millions of people around the world, uh, God would speak and people would be drawn to respond and they would walk down this aisle and they would receive Christ and they would do so publicly. Or, or maybe that's something that you've never seen, never heard of. and um, Maybe it was not the, the large stadium, but more the, the small church scene that you have in your mind. And there's this, again, there's uh, someone preaching the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and there's, a, there's an aisle and, and you, you're invited to respond publicly and you walk up and you receive Christ publicly. Maybe this is the image you're more familiar with. For me, actually, that was how it looked. I, I, I got on track with the Lord publicly in a church service. It, and uh, I walked up an aisle. I was the only one who did in a church, probably over 1,500 people. 
And and the pastor said, if, if anyone wants to respond to Christ, if God's speaking to you, and I, I, I thought everybody was going to go with me, and I was the only one. But God spoke to me. I'm so glad that he did. It changed my life. Let's see, the Bible tells us that this is the mission of the church and Christ followers, to, to make disciples. Jesus told his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is after his resurrection, just before he ascends into heaven. He tells his disciples, this is going to be your mission from moving forward. Make disciples. A disciple is a follower of Jesus, someone who learns from Jesus, walks with Jesus, follows after Jesus. Uh, so, first thing, you become a Christ follower, a disciple. And then what comes next? Jesus told us. He says, what do you do with a new disciple? Is You baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They identify publicly as a Christian. And then what do they do? They, they're, they're taught. So Jesus says, teaching them, the new disciples, to observe everything I have commanded you. Now, now for us, I, I and we as a church, we tend to encourage people uh, to obey Jesus and identify themselves publicly as his follower through something called baptism. Baptism is, is really a public confession of an inward decision. It's not uh, a saving act, but it is an outward act. It's an outward expression, even a confession, a declaration of an inward belief and decision. Something from the inside, a core decision has shifted, and then you go public and identify with Christ publicly. And so there's a picture of, of a, I love this image of this baptism years ago. Um, and you see the crowd of people around, they're cheering this person on. And again, this is a symbol of the new life that has occurred on the inside. I want to thank you for, for being a part of our service today. Uh, there's a few next steps I want to encourage you to take. Uh, first one is this. It's to ask someone the question this week. Who is Jesus? I urge you to ask. I dare you to ask. Just ask the question. Do the man on the street. It doesn't have to be a man on the street. It can be. Maybe do this with somebody that you know. Who is Jesus? Now, if you already follow Christ, just try this out. And ask God to help you share more about who Christ is and the difference he's made in your life. Second thing you can do is identify what is keeping me from confessing Christ as my Lord and Savior. Maybe maybe you'd like to talk to someone. Maybe if you're watching this live in our uh, online uh, uh, church, then you can let us know you'd like to chat or you'd like to follow up right now and, and we'll have people ready to interact with you. Uh, if you're watching this after, you can you can email us, you can let us know and we would love to follow up with you from your connection card. You could do so if you've got any questions. If you need to talk to someone, if you feel like you're on the fence and you've, you've got some questions, we would just love to help you uh, understand maybe what those barriers are that are preventing you from following Christ. The third is this. If you're really ready right now to turn to Christ and to turn your life over to him, maybe today the decision for you is, I need to commit my life to Jesus Christ today. Maybe you were raised in the church. Maybe you say, this is my parents' faith. It's, it's never been my own. Maybe you've never confessed Christ uh, in the way that Jesus is describing that we've looked at today. Uh, then my prayer for you and our hope for you is that you would uh, follow Christ today. Again, if you're watching this live, you can interact with us and we can help you nail that down. Uh, on your connection card, if you'd like to learn more about how to follow Christ, please let us know so we can have a conversation with you as you're sorting uh, that very important decision out. So let's pray as we wrap things up. Father, thank you for uh, our time together in your word. Thank you for this interaction we're able to see between Peter 
uh, this this key disciple and Jesus and uh, the way it, it forced us, Lord, to sort of wrestle in a very similar way uh, with our own confession. I pray for each person, Lord, that is uh, watching, and I pray that you would uh, continue to do your work in clarifying what it means to really walk and follow uh, along with you in, in life. Um, I pray for those that are searching right now that they would continue to ask questions and, Lord, that you continue to draw people to know you in a, in a very real and personal way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at occathome.com to learn more about how to connect with us. And join us again next week for another Orange Crest Community Church podcast. Have a great day.